You're listening to Good Mornings, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. Why didn't you sing Eminem for us, Sal? Oh, you know, it's just a <laughs> special treat for you guys. I'm not going to do it every app, you know. Don't want it to get boring. Have you got I... a, new, a new chair? I have. I've got an ergonomic oh, chair. Fancy. Oh my God, getting old. <laughs> Getting old and yeah, Ant was like, you need, I, I had this like vintage leather chair that was super cool that I got on like eBay, I think. And it's like 70s, but also like not very supportive at all. And, you know, Ant was like, I think, I think we need to upgrade your chair. So, so yeah, so we, we spent hours last night trying to get it right, you know, put it all like, so it fits my body, which caused Cute. a couple of, couple of stressful moments um i can imagine i wasn't cooperating (laughs) (laughs) well it looks lovely god i feel embarrassed about my old crappy chair now gonna have to upgrade it's one of those things i just wouldn't have thought about getting myself a good chair like i was very happy with my little vintage number but but you sit on it every day like it's it's important to be comfortable and supported just like our community (laughs) <laughs> much like grief a good work chair is important um yeah i'm so excited by the way for today's conversation yeah like it is probably i think one of the best near-death experience stories out there isn't it yes so we're speaking to Eben alexander which we'll get into in a second but he is such an incredible storyteller too so you guys are absolutely going to love this um but before we get stuck in besides your chair how are you feeling sal because i know we're coming into your big milestone milestone onslaught (laughs) that is a really good way to describe it the milestone onslaught (laughs) yeah it's coming so um mum's death anniversary is in a couple of weeks i can't believe it's been four years Mm. um and four years since i was back in the uk it just like so much has happened since then i think you know with the milestones they are those markers in time as well aren't they and they make you i think sometimes the further along you get the more you realize how much has happened that they've missed Mm. um and also i had a terrifying dream last night that ant died um and no and it was like you know you wake up it was a really weird dream i don't know what i dreamt of to make me think of it but ant died and then you know have you have you seen ted lasso i haven't but it's on my long list of things to watch so there's this character called Nate. Um, anyone who watches Ted Lasso will know who I mean. Um, and he was, like, trying to crack on with me. And I was like, hang on a minute. My husband's just died. Like, what's going on? <laughs> anyway, so that was a very stressful dream. And I don't know whether that's been, like, prompted by... I'm thinking about mum, the death anniversary, the experience of going through a sudden loss. Do you know what I mean? I wonder whether it's kind of, like, it's it's on my mind and I'm reliving that experience. Because you do relive the experience as well, don't you? When you come up to milestones, it's it's like you kind of go back to the memories and you go back to that time and place when everything changed so that could have that could have been the the prompt for that really horrible dream but um yeah I'm just reminding myself that even though it's four years in I it's okay if I feel a bit crap a bit tired a bit anxious like it's normal Mm. um so I'm just you know doing the old rest and boundaries and all that jazz well that's like it's been one of your biggest fears though i think around ant like just losing ant like that's your one of your biggest anxieties i would say especially you know in the early days after your mum died you were so fearful of it so it makes sense for that to kind of rear its head a bit around this time of year and i think because you know because it's just the two of us here like ant's family's in new zealand my family's in the uk we don't have kids you know so it is very much the two of us and the dogs um it is a fear and poor old aunt like after mum died i re- i was had overwhelming anxiety and fear and i know we've spoken about this on the pod about him dying suddenly and you we actually, to get his fingerprint well the- i was just thinking about that so so ib and i we um <gasps> We emceed an event a couple of months ago for a jewellery brand called Deja Mark and they have these beautiful fingerprint necklaces. And I actually wore mine to the event and I think I was talking to somebody and they're like, oh, that's a nice fingerprint. Um, Whose is that? Is that your mum's? 
I was like, no, it's my husband's. And I actually got this done like a couple of months after mum died because I wanted to memorialise him <laughs> because I was so anxious that he was going to die suddenly. <laughs> Probably not the aim of their brand. Like, yes, you know, it's not like for memorialisation when you're really anxious about someone dying. But I was, I was like, get your fucking fingerprint on that necklace ASAP. Like having like, that fingerprint was going to solve you. all your problems when he dies. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Guys, so, it's fine. I've got his fingerprint. Everything's yeah. all good. <laughs> I'm not grieving. I've got the fingerprint. I'm cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, poor old Anne. He had to really talk me down um, quite a few occasions. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's me. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> talk you down from his impending death. <laughs> poor Anne. Oh, oh. oh. I think it's listens. common, though. I do think it's common. Like, I know you've had where Ben doesn't answer the phone. I remember, like, in the oh, early days God. of our friendship, you'd be like, oh, my God, he's not home from football yet. It's been five minutes. I still that's do it. it. I still do it. I, it's just those thoughts. You know what? It <clears throat> breeds into like the anxiety. It's just we have like really kind of negative thoughts that just pop in. And I've just really learned to not feed into it. Yeah. Like I do it all the time. Like Ben goes to football t- twice a week. And yesterday, last night he went to football and it was like storming outside. And I had a whole scenario play out in my head about – Ben drives football, he gets into a car accident. He, I can't get a hold of him. It's midnight, he's still not home. How am I going to get in contact with him? I thought I'll have to track down someone on Facebook to like get in touch to find out if they saw Ben at football and went like, plan his funeral. Basically, like the whole scenario will play out in my mind and then I'll catch myself and be like, what the fuck are you doing? And what do you do in that moment? Do you, what do you say to yourself to get yourself out of that mindset? Well, I used to feed into it and then that would just spiral and then ruin my, like, whole evening. Life, Life, yeah, basically. And then I'd call Ben, like, you know, anxiously just checking he's okay. And now I, because I know what it is, it's just an anxious, irrational thought. And I'll, as soon as I catch myself, I kind of just go, oh my God, I'm just, I'm spiraling for absolutely no reason. Ben's fine. Carry on with what you're doing. And it's something that we learnt with Anxiety Josh, actually, where the safety behaviours, I think having a term for that, like the things that we do to try and make ourselves feel better in the moment, like calling them to check. And like, now I really stop myself. I'm like, don't make that call. You don't need to. You're absolutely fine. And then it just passes so much quicker now that I catch myself. Um, yes. But yeah, that really helps. But yeah, last night I planned his funeral too. So we're both, you know, oh, doing the same sort of thing. And with <laughs> the safety behaviours, yeah, it's like it's like enabling the anxiety, isn't yes, it? Yes, giving so it power. Not, not making that call, you're retraining your brain to not just jump straight to that anxious behaviour. I actually actively sometimes just say to myself out loud, stop it yeah. <laughs> with the thought. And I, yeah. that, that helps kind of move me out of that moment. But anyway, we're not here to talk about anxiety. We're here to talk about the afterlife today. Uh, this could very easily turn into a whole uh, episode on anxiety, as often happens when we record That just made me laugh so hard. We're not here to talk about anxiety. We're here to talk about the afterlife. Just another day of Immensel. I know. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh. Im, who are we talking to today? Tell us. Oh, I would love to tell you, if you guys are interested in in the afterlife as we are very much then today's convo is for you we are joined by harvard neurosurgeon eben alexander to share his incredible near-death experience and what it taught him about life and eben is the author of several incredible books including the best-selling proof of heaven a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife Yes, and he will tell you all about his story, so we won't go into it in detail, but it is pretty wild. And what's interesting about Eben's story compared to other near-death experiences that we've covered on the pod is that he so he fell gravely ill with bacterial meningitis, and it has a 90% mortality rate. He was put into a medically-induced coma, but his neocortex was so badly damaged, wasn't it, Im, that he actually... Mm. He, he should not or technically couldn't have been in a dreamlike state. Yeah. Because it, it was like, he was almost like, um, well, it was, he should have been just blank, right? He shouldn't have been able to access a part of his brain. Yeah. And, and he, so, yeah. He explains it so well because he is a neurosurgeon. So he just, yeah, what happened is wild. It's like he, sh- he had amnesia, he should have had amnesia. But he still had near-death experience. They just couldn't... 
explain that and even him as a neurosurgeon is like well what's going on because mm. obviously that part of the brain shouldn't be lighting up at all but yeah. it was so i mean so. and that also is an extra layer of what makes this so interesting as a conversation isn't it he is a brain mm. surgeon neurosurgeon he kind of deals with the brain so obviously what happened to him and his near-death experiences it's an interesting perspective yeah, you guys are going to absolutely love this one. And before we jump in, we just want to let you guys know that we've actually partnered with My Tribute, which is a place where you can share your favorite memory of your person online forever. If this sounds like something that you guys want to get involved with, come and share your story. Uh, you can find the link in our show notes to get involved. So let's jump into the conversation, guys, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Evan, it's great to have you joining us today. Well, it's a joy to be here, uh, Imogen and uh, Sally. I'm very grateful for the invitation. You've written several incredible books, and it was your first book, Proof of Heaven, that really captivated readers around the world. But to set the scene, can you please tell us first about what your life was like as a neurosurgeon before you became ill, and then what led you to becoming ill? Because what happened to you was quite rare, wasn't it? It was very rare, uh, especially the recovery. That part uh, is really, to this day, quite mysterious from a medical viewpoint, but I think we certainly have some better answers. But mm -hmm. uh, just getting back to your question, I'd spent the first uh, 54 years of my life owning a fairly conventional uh, scientific worldview, that is, uh, you know, our modern science uh, through the 20th and early 21st century, the, the general model out there is of materialism or physicalism, you know, which basically says only the physical world exists. And therefore, you must somehow explain how uh, the physical matter of the brain is related to what we experience as consciousness, uh, the brain-mind connection. Um, and I had heard stories, uh, you know, beautiful spiritual stories from patients. Uh, nurses had shared things with me that the patients that our patients had been through, et cetera, that suggested a much bigger spiritual world. And yet I, from the scientific side, wanted to measure everything, quantify everything, and figure that's the only way we can explain any of this. And that's why I think my, my journey was such a gift, because it occurred in a setting where uh, really my brain, the evidence for damage to my brain was so extensive uh, that a medical case report written on my medical records by three doctors not involved in my care, but fascinated by my recovery, and that case report came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September of 2018. And they made two points uh, very clear. One is that due to the uh, Glasgow Coma Scales, neurologic exams, CT and MRI scans, lab values, this uh, meningitis was so severe that I should have had no dream or hallucination at all. Those parts of my brain were wildly inactivated by the meningitis. And so how in the world did I have the most profound, detailed, memorable, uh, transformative uh, experience of my lifetime when my brain was very uh, demonstrably offline? And that is really where the scientific community uh, takes my story very seriously. People often ask me, what do your skeptical scientific colleagues make of all this? Well, they're kind of with me on, oh my gosh, how did all this happen? And the medical case report not only mentions that I could not have had a, a dream or hallucination given the damage to my brain, but also they point out the recovery. You know, here I am, a 69-year-old guy who uh, uh, basically spent uh, a week in coma 15 years ago due to a disease that should have killed me, uh, and then ended up coming back to this world. Admittedly, my brain was, was pretty much wrecked when I came back. I didn't even recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons, etc., all I remembered was where I had just been. And that's another kind of a unique feature of my uh, NDE compared to other near-death experiences is that I was amnesic. I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life, Earth, this universe, none of our language, none of that, no concepts uh, from my religious upbringing or anything. It was all gone, an empty slate, which I only realized in the months and years after the coma was absolutely necessary for me to fully accept it uh, for what it was and not try to dismiss it based on my old, uh, uh, you know, false, uh, improper paradigms of materialism or physicalism. And so it has been a, a complete transformation of my life. And in fact, 
it's really the scientific community that has supported me so fully through all this. And, uh, you know, I, I remain a scientist as I've always been. And I knew after this journey that I had to explain it scientifically. And what I didn't realize was that actually there are hundreds of scientists around the world who've been working on what is called the survival question. That is, do our souls survive bodily death uh, for decades now? And uh, they really are making tremendous progress. And I think my story and proof of heaven have really helped to uh, kind of foster that environment of, of kind of learning and growth and a deeper understanding that leaves the bleak and paltry fiction of materialism with its false sense of separation, that we're all separate from each other as opposed to being unified through consciousness. Uh, you know, this is where the, the science of consciousness is headed. And the evidence only really leads in one direction, and that is one that supports the primacy of mind and that we're all really connected through mind. Uh, and it's really the mind of the universe that we're connected through. Uh, so I would say that the scientific world is changing very radically on all this, has everything in the world to do with quantum physics, even though many quantum physicists don't even realize yet uh, how important uh, you know, entanglement and these other concepts in modern quantum physics are for understanding the nature of the brain-mind question, the nature of reality, basically. Let's start with what happened, because it's a fascinating story. So you um, became ill basically overnight, wasn't, was, is that right? Very right. quickly went into a coma and then had this incredible near-death experience. So can you take us through like that, what happened to you when you became ill and then your near-death experience? Sure. Um, so really up until the night before, everything had been going perfectly normally. I mean, there's nothing in retrospect that was out of line. But at 4.30 in the morning, November 10th, 2008, I woke up with severe back pain uh, and soon realized I also had a severe headache uh, and then lapsed into coma, grand mal seizures. All that was at home. There's mm -hmm. a myth out in the world due to some um, uh, erroneous reports about my case that it was a medically induced coma. But as Bruce Grayson, who has studied NDEs for more than 45 years as an MD, as a skeptical MD, uh, put it in his chapter 10 of his recent uh, autobiography entitled After. Um, in that book, chapter 10 pretty much discusses my case in detail. And uh, Dr. Grayson makes it very clear that I went into coma before any sedation was given. Uh, even though I had powerful sedating medications that week because of the, the uh, seizure issues and uh, uh, how I was just struggling at such a low conscious level, uh, by the end of the week, I actually emerged from coma while I was still on very powerful sedation. So the important thing to the scientific community is that it was a meningitis-induced coma. And the reason that's so important is because of what we know about the nature of meningitis and how it affects the brain, affects especially the neocortex, the brainstem. And this was a very severe case. That's what that case report makes clear. But the other important thing that they made clear in the case report, uh, in addition to my brain could not have even had a dream or hallucination, is the survival. You know, uh, when they submitted the case report, the peer review editors at Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease said, uh, this case is uh, absurd. You know, nobody's ever been this sick from bacterial meningitis and then made a full recovery. How do you explain it? And they explained it by saying, because he had an NDE. So that's why the mm -hmm. scientific world takes this uh, kind of evidence extremely seriously. And uh, so I'll now take you into the experience itself. Important to point out that one of the atypical features of my near-death experience is that I was amnesic. I didn't remember any of the life of Evan Alexander, I had no words, language, no knowledge of this universe, this earth, none of that. Humans, all gone. And wow. it, it, it was apparent to me in the months and years after my coma why that had to be. If I had followed a more kind of standard pathway, I bet it would have been more tempted to reject it uh, as, you know, a hallucination. And that's why I needed to go really deep and have such an extreme case of meningoencephalitis. Uh, and where it all started in this kind of amnesic state was in what I call the earthworm's eye view, very primitive course, kind of unresponsive realm, like being in dirty jello. Uh, I have strong memories of roots or blood vessels all around me. I had no body image during any part of the journey. Um, and in this uh, earthworm's eye view, luckily, it didn't last forever. 
Uh, and it sounds foreboding when I talk about it, but when I lived through it, it was the only reality I knew. So I simply accepted it, no complaints. Uh, but luckily I was rescued by a slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And that white light opened like a rip in the fabric of that ugly earthworm eye view realm and led me up into this brilliant ultra real gateway valley. And this is where so many people kind of misunderstand near-death experiences. They think, oh, they must be kind of dreamy and murky. No, that realm was much more real than this realm. This wow. is dreamlike by comparison. Really? And of course, that is the story that comes through over and over and over again yeah. when you pay attention to near-death experiences going back thousands of years. That's why they are so transformative in people's lives and why people come back not fearing death. Because they realize death is not an end. It's actually a liberation from the shackles of the prison of the brain and body and the physical realm and kind of this sense of self. The good news is we can all discover that on our own through meditation, centering prayer, other modalities. You don't have to have an NDE. But anyway, back to my story. Up into this brilliant gateway valley, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these vast formations, colors beyond the rainbow. Um, and down below us was a meadow surrounded by this forest. There were uh, crystal blue uh, pools that were filled by these sparkling waterfalls. All the plant life was absolutely lush and fertile. Buds, blossoms, flowers, everything opening up in this rich, dynamic uh, kind of bravado of life that was just uh, indescribable. And it was like a, a festival going on because there were thousands of beings down in that meadow and they were dancing, lots of joy and merriment. There were children playing, dogs jumping. I mean, incredible festivities. And all of it was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs, pure kind of oval um, essential beings. I would say they, I called them uh, angelic choirs because they were emanating chants, anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness. Uh, I mean, it was absolutely a, a magical uh, place, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out I wasn't alone in all of this. There was a beautiful young woman, uh, sparkling blue eyes, high forehead, high cheekbones, broad smile, soft brown hair framing her lovely face. She served as a spiritual guide. She was there with me on the butterfly wing. And she looked at me with this look of pure love. And her, her message to me, she never had to say a word but just this beautiful kind of melding of mind, a telepathic, emotional, uh, informational message, which when I put it to words weeks later after I'd come out of coma, the message was very simple. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And I cannot tell you how promising and reassuring that was uh, in that part of the journey. Uh, th that's the other interesting thing is I remember around that time is this soft summer breeze that blew through. Uh, and it changed everything about my awareness of it because I called that breeze later on the breath of God or the divine wind. It was my first knowing in that amnesic state of the beautiful, loving, spiritual power of that infinitely loving God source at the core of the universe. I mean, something like 90% of near-death experiencers come back from these experiences and have for thousands of years believing that there is some a uh, loving, intelligent force at the core of the universe. And I realized from my journey, it doesn't matter if you want to label that as God, Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. I don't care what words you want to use. Uh, the, the reality is that is the, what we find there. That is the deep reality that comes back. Uh, and if more than 90% of NDEers come back believing in that force, I think the rest of us should take it pretty seriously. Um, you know, that that God force is, is very real. In fact, I saw it as the very source of our conscious awareness. Now, I'll get back into this uh, gateway valley with that beautiful guardian angel. Um, and what happened next was I remember uh, already I'd had the musical portal take me up from the earth where my view into this brilliant uh, ultra real valley. And now those angelic choirs above were provided yet another portal to even higher levels. And, and to put it in proper perspective, you've got to remember that this level, this gateway valley is in kind of an intersection of earthly-like realms and spiritual realms. This is where one would go through, say, a life review, uh, where all the events of your life could flash before your eyes. The point to be made here is that 
all those things happen simultaneously. So that realm is no longer slave to earth time. That is a very important point. If you want to understand the deeper aspects that involve things like after-death communications, uh, deathbed visions, you know, our loved ones appearing to us at the time of bodily death, uh, and also past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. Uh, the only way to make sense of that is realize that Earth time is here for to support the stage setting for the drama to unfold. But in fact, in that spiritual realm, we realize that all of that is accessible in a different temporal dimension that I call deep time or meta time. Um, and that helps to resolve a lot of paradoxes and kind of confusion about how people can even have these experiences, including uh, after-death communications and children remembering past lives, uh, which is scientifically validated, for example, from the work at UVA and University of Virginia in the United States. Um, But anyway, getting back into the main part of the story, so what I witnessed was all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down. All of that rich spiritual realm and its deep time or meta time of higher ordering of events, all of that collapsing down until I had before me this uh, kind of complex oversphere, as I called it, that was the universe throughout all of eternity. But that was in the core realm. So this, uh, the angelic choirs from the Gateway Valley had provided another portal up into this higher level where everything resolved into that one oneness and unity. And I recognize there that our very conscious awareness is sourced in that God force. Uh, So we're never separate from from that. Uh, And that is something that's very reassuring to a lot of near-death experiencers as they describe their stories, is how that realm seems so much like our spiritual home. It is where we belong. And yet most of the growth, I will remind people, actually happens here in this material realm where we're temporarily dumbed down to the knowledge that is available to our higher souls in those spiritual realms and uh, kind of plodding along uh, living these lives where we learn and teach with each other, but we have skin in the game. And that's what gives us this buy-in into being these material beings, uh, dealing with each other and uh, learning as much as we can about life in the universe. Uh, now, it turns out in that core realm, uh, every time I went there, because I would cycle through, uh, uh, and every time I went in, I was told, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back, we'll teach you many things. And what did happen is in the midst of all those lessons, and the lessons are what make up so much of what I've talked about for the last 15 years, uh, but they're really very simple. But the reality is I would tumble back down to that earthworm eye view, that very primitive course uh, unresponsive starting space. And there, by remembering the musical notes of the melody, that's how I could conjure up that light portal that led back up into the Gateway Valley, always reassured by that lovely guardian angel, uh, and then uh, ushered up into the core realm for more. Uh, and I went through those cycles several times. I think part of the lesson about the multiple levels and the repeat visits had to do with a deeper understanding of consciousness and the different uh, kind of spiritual levels available. Uh, and also a, a deep lesson about how the brain is not the creator of consciousness at all. We're conscious in spite of our brain. Uh, but the brain is how, you know, a, a physical body in the four-dimensional space-time of this universe has access to that mental realm, uh, which is really the mind of the universe that we all share. Now, uh, there did come a time when I could no longer conjure up the the, using the musical notes, I no longer got the uh, beautiful light portal into the Gateway Valley. To say I was sad would be an understatement, but I also knew by that point I could trust that the, the universe was there to care for me. It would, it would do the right thing as long as I had that love in my heart. And that is when I witnessed thousands of beings going off into the distance around us, uh, heads bowed, some holding candles, this murmuring energy coming from them. And it was fascinating to me because that murmuring energy brought me the very same sense of being in a spiritual home that I'd first gotten in both the Gateway Valley and the core realm. But now I'm getting it in this lowest kind of dark and murky realm because of all these beings. And they were basically humans in prayer. That's basically how I put it all together, the words I used to write it up. That's what it seemed to me when I came back to this world. Uh, and that was really the almost the last of the journey because at the very end of the journey, uh, was uh, I, I saw six faces. And the, the faces would kind of come up out of the muck. They'd say a few words. 
that I didn't understand because of the amnesia, and then they disappear. Uh, and they're very important. I can remember them as vividly now in my mind as if they just appeared to me this morning. I mean, the images were sharp and clear, but at the time I saw them, I did not recognize who they were. Uh, it turns out that, importantly, uh, five of those six were people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours I was in coma. Uh, and there were numerous other family and friends who had been there earlier in the week who I had no memory of. The reason this is important is because these serve as what are known as veridical time anchors. They showed that the vast majority of the coma journey had to happen between days one and four or one in five of a seven-day coma. I explain the timing in the book, Proof of Heaven, but that those are the facts of uh, you know all the evidence and, and what it tells us about how this uh, uh, whole a series of events occurred. And it was really the sixth face that got my attention. Uh, that was of a 10-year-old boy. And it turns out it was my son. His name is Bond. Uh, yeah, that name is obviously far more pertinent than I ever appreciated before my coma. Uh, but during most of that week, they had protected Bond from the worst news. But on that Sunday morning, day seven of coma, they heard that, um, I mean, the uh, family was in a conference with the doctors where the doctor said I'd gone from 10% chance of survival down to 2%, no chance of recovery. And that's why they recommended stopping antibiotics, taking me off the ventilator and just letting me go. And Bond was just outside the door and overheard all this and now realized it was much worse than he'd been told. So he came running down the hallway, pulled open my eyelids, one eye looking over there, one eye over there, neither pupil working. Anybody in medicine knows that's a horrible picture. And I, I'm certain I did not see him with my eyes or hear him with my ears. I was far too gone from this world based on my neurologic exams and all the other medical evidence in this case. Uh, but somehow his message got through and he was pleading with me, Daddy, going to be OK. Daddy, going to be OK, as if somehow that would make it so. Now, I didn't understand the words and I didn't know who he was, but there was something about that pleading. And I had been through this entire journey with my amnesia, thinking this can continue, it can cease, none of it matters. But now every bit of it mattered because I realized there was some other soul out there and I had this deep responsibility to be there for him in some fashion. And yet I had no idea what that meant or how to do it. Uh, and that's how I ended up being drawn back to this world, uh, my higher soul and free will. I came back to this world. But when I was first uh, waking up there in the ICU room um, and fighting the ventilator and they took out the breathing tube. And I went, thank you. Uh, you know, I don't remember any of that. I don't even remember much of the next uh, uh, 36 hours. I was in and out of a paranoid, delusional, uh, psychotic nightmare. But the interesting thing is that I'm glad I wrote all the memories down as quickly as I did from this experience, because the memories from that nightmare phase after I woke up from coma, disappeared within a few weeks. The memories from the deep coma journey are as sharp today as if the whole thing happened yesterday. Uh, I've spent the last 15 years working with uh, uh, neuroscientists and other scientists, physicists, etc., uh, trying to get to deeper understanding of all this because the scientific community certainly realizes the importance of my story because they get the medical details. I mean, the, the lay people... Uh, you know, they're welcome to the case report and they certainly can make good sense of it. Uh, it's available on my website if you want want to read it. Uh, it's also available at uvadops.org, which is uh, the group that actually wrote the case report. I think the one of the most important things is, uh, you know, that, that that recovery was really unprecedented. And that's the thing that got the attention of the scientific peer reviewers. They said, how in the world do you explain this case? It's absurd. Nobody's ever been this sick and, and recovered fully. And they said it's because he had a near-death experience. So that gives us the proper focus for kind of the spiritual nature that we are as human beings and how important it is in, in bringing us into healing and wholeness. What a fascinating story. It's just unbelievable, really. But I'm interested to know, Evan, when you were in that spiritual world realm, were you conscious that you were Evan and you had this whole life back on earth or you were just in a whole Absolutely other place? Not zero, not wow. even a whisper of that. Yeah. I mean, literally the entire journey was spent in complete amnesia for my life. And that yeah. is a very atypical feature for an NDE. But mm -hmm. my NDE stacks up. I mean, if you use the Bruce Grayson 
uh, NDE scale that he devised in 1983 that has 16 different elements to measure the strength of an NDE. Maximum score is 32. My score was probably 28 or 29. It's one of the highest scores they'd ever seen. So there were tremendous aspects of my journey that were classic, powerful NDE. And yet I, I came to recognize in the months after that, that if I'd had a classic NDE, for example, if I'd scripted it, my father would have been there. My adoptive mm. father, he was a world-renowned neurosurgeon. He's the reason I went into the field. He had passed over four years before my coma, and he was nowhere to be found in this journey. And to wow. me, that was a very bothersome scenario because the more I read about NDEs, I'd never read about them before, but you can bet after having one, I had to read everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> but my oldest son, who was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time, told me to write everything down before I read anything. Best advice I've ever gotten. Wrote 20,000 or so words about my NDE, then dove deep into that literature. But I was shocked because the more I read about it, the more I realized that that guardian angel who was so important in, in hosting me through this experience is supposed to be someone very important to you in life. And yet I came back knowing her so well from this beautiful mind meld we had shared, this telepathic connection, that I knew I'd never met this woman. Hmm. And that, of course, is kind of at the heart of the story of Proof of Heaven. And people who've read the book will realize just how important that beautiful guardian angel was. But I can tell you, as we report in the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, where I go into a lot of detail about everything that's happened uh, mm -hmm. in the 15 years since the coma, about coming to a deeper understanding, uh, every bit of that um, uh, has, has, has to do with... Uh, coming to an understanding of the primacy of mind. That's really where the scientific community is headed. Uh, that's where I think uh, my story has been such a powerful uh, contribution to the scientific literature on consciousness and has really helped a lot of scientists step up to the next level of realizing we live in a much bigger universe than the puny little picture entailed by materialist or physicalist scientific thought. And I think that's really helpful as well for grievers. So people who have lost a loved one to hear these stories like yours and to know that this life isn't the only life. Death isn't the end. And you talked about consciousness and the mind body connection. What have you learned that might bring comfort to somebody who is grieving the loss of a loved one when it comes to consciousness? I think the most important thing to say is that our souls are eternal. What we are talking about here in terms of a scientific model is that consciousness is primordial in the universe. It's fundamental. The physical universe's, universe emerges from the mental. And this is where, for example, placebo effect is just the beginning of our uh, kind of demonstration of mind over matter. It has a lot to do with healing and what physicians have come to recognize about our power to heal. The brain is not the creator of consciousness. It's a filter, a reducing valve that allows that primordial consciousness to manifest. And we each run around with this kind of notion that we have our own individual mental space. But scientists have demonstrated telepathy to be very real. Uh, mm -hmm. Telepathy, just read Guillaume Playfair's book on twin telepathy, where he talks about more than 35% of identical twins having very powerful, demonstrable telepathic connections. You'll never doubt the reality of telepathy again. Of course, it goes far beyond just twins, but that's just an excellent source to show that it, it's real. Then you've got things like remote viewing. It's one of the most proven fields um, in, uh, uh, in, in parapsychology, of uh, the you know, psychic spy programs of various governments. And uh, Jessica Utz, the head of the American Statistical Association, in her presidential address in 2015, made it crystal clear that both precognition and remote viewing were statistically very sound and proven scientifically. And this is why remote viewing, telepathy, these are very powerful, scientifically proven modes to show us the kind of primacy of consciousness in the universe mm -hmm. and our connectedness. And I think for anyone who is bereaved, it brings great comfort to realize that the scientific study of uh, near-death experiences, uh, shared death experiences, which are just like near-death but happen in perfectly normal people, usually a relative who's losing a loved one, who might be a thousand miles away, uh, but in a shared death experience, the bystander soul gets pulled along with the uh, uh, dying soul 
even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review, and then the bystander's soul comes back to this world. Shared death experiences are not uncommon. If you check into Shared Crossing Project with William Peters in Santa Barbara, Google that, and you'll find a tremendous program that he's developed to help enhance the chances that people might have a shared death experience with a departing loved one. He recently wrote a book that's called um, um, At Death's Door, and I, that's William Peters. I highly recommend that book. Um, but it, it's really, you know, about coming to understand near-death experiences are just the tip of the spear at showing us this primacy of consciousness and the ongoing nature of our relationships with loved ones. Mm-hmm. After-death communications, you know, deathbed visions and end-of-life visions in the hospice literature where people go on to die are identical to what you find in the near-death literature. They always have loved ones who appear to them. Before my coma, I would have thought, you know, loved ones who have already left the physical plane. Before my coma, I would have proudly told you as this card-toting materialist neurosurgeon that that's, uh, you know, wishful thinking that they see these loved ones. I now know that it's an imprimatur that absolutely proves the authenticity of the experience the person is going through. It happened in my own mother, uh, my adoptive mother, who passed over at the age of 99 in April of 2019, uh, and uh, she spent the last four days of her life unresponsive with a respiratory infection. Not uncommon in a 99-year-old to have that kind of whack, you know, down to the ground when you get a, a fever and infection. Um, but two nights before she passed, uh, kind of totally against any kind of medical understanding, she woke up, got out of bed, which her nurses said was impossible, woke the nurse up and said, my mother's here. My mother's here. Call my children. She's really here. My mother was ecstatic. Now, unfortunately, the nurse did not call us, um, but uh, we did end up going there within a day or two. Turns out, oddly enough, at that time, I was down the Bahamas giving um, a presentation with William Peters Uh, you know, on the afterlife and on shared uh, crossings and all that kind of thing. And then I went right home to my mother passing from this world. Uh, And I spent the last Mm -hmm. night of her life, I was lying on a mattress on the floor beside her bed, had the most fantastic dreams of seeing her in her youth, her, uh, my father, uh, Evan Jr., both in their youth and uh, other people involved in their lives, including many that I didn't know. Uh, all in these uh, very real dreams going on. And then she passed from this world very peacefully at 8.30 the next morning. But she never returned to consciousness as she had at 2.30 a.m. when she saw her own mother. And I think that is something that we hear a lot when it comes to NDEs, that people see their loved ones as they're approaching the end of life. Isn't it, Im? It's something that we've heard a lot in conversation with other people. Like we spoke to Dr. Bruce Brayson on the podcast before, and he's talked about that. I'd I'd love to know, you've talked about spirituality and you've talked about ways that we can tap into our consciousness to help us connect with that bigger universe. And I know that mindfulness has played a really big part in your journey since you had that experience. What can we do and what have you changed in your life since this experience happened to you? Well, what I can recommend to people is to meditate, take some time. And for me, meditation is the same as centering prayer. Uh, It always involves an infinitely loving uh, God at the core of the universe that is a co-creator of our evolving uh, reality. Um, But I started, I realized, I guess within two years of waking up from coma, I'd read about 150 books on quantum physics, on the brain-mind connection, on spiritual traditions, East and West, trying to get some answers. And I finally realized that if I wanted to really get it, I had to explore my own consciousness. I had to develop a very regular pattern of meditation and going within. Uh, And I've been very grateful for that. I've spent the last 11 or 12 years. I use a technique of sacred acoustics. If you go to sacredacoustics.com, you'll learn a lot more. Uh, Full disclosure, Sacred Acoustics was co-founded by my partner, Karen Newell, who is also the co-author of our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe. That book goes a long way towards bringing science and spirituality together and also goes into deep detail about explaining uh, what's going on with differential frequency brainwave entrainment. Why do these sounds of sacred acoustics have so much power? Mm. And um, we talk a lot about that. It has to do with the fact that they're intersecting in the lower brainstem in circuits that are more than 300 million years old. 
Uh, that has a lot to do with their great power at helping to separate uh, kind of conscious awareness from our normal kind of ego, human-focused consciousness into a much grander transcendental form of consciousness like you encounter in near-death experiences. Uh, and I think it's because of that, uh, the intersection of those sounds, uh, the slightly different frequencies to the two ears. If you go to sacredacoustics.com, you can learn a lot more about it. She has very instructional videos and a lot of information. But um, it turns out I've used uh, those tones uh, pretty much daily for the last uh, 11 or 12 years and uh, have used them not only to return to my NDE, uh, not just to recover memories, but to develop a rich, ongoing, active, dynamic relationship with the various agents and entities and that infinitely loving God force that mm-hmm. I first discovered in my NDE, but I've used meditation to return to that. And I think the biggest piece of information to share with people uh, <laughs> just has to do with one of my biggest discoveries early on was that there's far more to me and my soul and my kind of ex- mental experience of Evan Alexander than just the little voice in my head. I love how Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul, he calls the voice in your head your annoying roommate. And that's a very, <laughs> very good way to put it. That is not your consciousness at all. Uh, your consciousness is a far deeper mystery. The voice in your head is little more than a parlor trick compared to the awareness of that voice. I wish when Rene Descartes said that centuries ago, he said, I think, therefore I am. I wish he'd said, I'm aware of my thoughts, therefore I am. But the thoughts are not the magic of consciousness. It's the awareness. Uh, And that's where uh, we teach people in our meditation play shops with sacred acoustics, et cetera, to uh, let that little ego voice in your mind state a request, ask a question, whatever, at the beginning of the meditation. But then you learn to ride those tones, ride the music of sacred acoustics, focus on your breathing, and let that little ego mind drift off into the rearview mirror because you're off on an adventure. Uh, and you, the more you do this, the more you start to develop uh, kind of a broader ability to let go of that ego mind and open up into your true higher soul. Um, And this is where, you know, the scientific model of the brain is a reducing valve or transceiver that receives primordial consciousness but does not create it, starts to become very apparent because we learn that by going within, we can start exploring into that primordial mind and open ourselves to what the universe has to teach us to help us grow and transform uh, at our current level of development. Can't wait to check it out. You've shared some incredible resources during this episode. I am curious to know, did you find it difficult to adjust back to this materialistic world after your spiritual experience? Because I can imagine it would have been quite difficult. Well, I can say for me, it was was really a pleasant experience. I came back uh, and do know that, you know, when I first came back, my brain was really wrecked. Uh, as I said, not even recognizing beloved family members at the bedside. All that repaired over hours and days. And in fact, all my memories were back over about two months. And interestingly enough, I discovered through a comparison of conversations with close family about distant early events in my life that the memories were more complete after the coma than they had been before the coma. That's a real shocker to many people. And in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we explain a lot about how memory is not even stored in the brain. It's something that neurosurgeons uh, have kind of suspected for a long time because there's never been a brain operation that was associated with the deletion of long-term memories in spite of more than you know millions of brain resections over the last century or so, uh, never, uh, including cases of hemispherectomy in young children where half a brain was taken out. It's absolutely fascinating. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to be so, so interested in your work and your books and also practicing some mindfulness and some meditation and having a look at some sacred acoustics. So thank you so much for for joining us and for sharing your story with us. It's 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 really really comforting um, to to listen to. And where can listeners find you? Because no doubt they're going to want to read your books and and find out more. So people can definitely uh, find me at ebenalexander.com. 
And I would highly recommend the FAQ page, the blog postings, and especially the, the recommended reading list that has more than 100 books, chapters. Go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more about the meditation. There's a free 20-minute OM download. Listen through headphones. Very important to split the sound signals to the two ears. Okay. Uh, you can learn a lot more about meditation at Sacred Acoustics. Then also, I would recommend Inner Sanctum Center. That's I-N-N-E-R SanctumCenter.com. That's a site uh, Karen and I developed. It was Karen's brilliance, really. Uh, but that site has a, a whole host of interviews we did with thought leaders around the world on the science of consciousness, as well as other experiencers. We did all that during the pandemic. Uh, every two weeks, we'd have these interviews, and, and they're now available for free right there at innersanctumcenter.com. So there's just a huge body of evidence that brings tremendous comfort uh, to the uh, bereaved and to those who are grieving the loss of a loved one, or for those who are facing a terminal illness of their own mortality. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of comfort that can come from the scientific study of consciousness and what it is showing us about the true nature of the soul. And that is where the evidence leads. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Eben. I think there's a lot of fantastic resources there. And I think for any listeners who are interested in this topic, you've just given them a lot of great, great further reading. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat to speak to you. Well, my pleasure, Em and Sally. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great talking with you. Uh, And maybe sometime we can chat again. As always, a huge thanks for tuning in, guys. We really hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. And before we go, we have a little favor to ask. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast, as it really helps other grievers find us too. Until next time. 